guess all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2. So listen now as God speaks to you through his word. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and His possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the Lord's presence. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made raids on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, He would speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
And thus far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we ask for your help this night as we come to a text that is full of truth that all of us need. Many we know in the room even need it this week. No doubt all of us will need it for the coming life that you have appointed for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so by your Spirit, we pray that you would raise our gaze to where your Son is seated at your right hand, that we might find comfort in him tonight, that we might find nourishment by his Word and Spirit. And we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's probably true, isn't it, that there are few announcements that people can make that bring such joy as the announcement that a baby is on the way. You watch the grin and the smile and the happiness and the delight flash across the young mother's face or the young father's face. If there are siblings, of course, the siblings get quite excited, don't they, as well? And no doubt the grandparents have a peculiar joy and and happiness and looking to the future when they hear a baby is on the way. And certainly, and conversely, there are a few sorrows that strike the soul in such a way as discovering that that baby that brought so much joy so many weeks, days, or perhaps months before is actually found to have not survived in the womb. You know, it was one of the more painful situations in my pastoral ministry years ago when one of our church members, who happened to be very close friends of Emily and I, they called me up on the phone one day and said, you know, our third child is on the way. And so uh, we spent the coming days celebrating with them that the third uh, child was, we trusted, uh, soon to arrive in several months' time. And I can still remember the day when my phone began to ring and his name flashed across my screen, and I answered him and said, hey, what's going on? And he said, you know, we just got back from the doctor, and we discovered that the baby has this condition where the skull is never going to fully form. And so the doctor said, if it makes it to term, uh, the baby's not going to survive out of the womb. And so what began, as many of you would understand, were, were days or weeks of watching a baby grow of seeing a belly swell, of understanding a baby was soon going to be born, but born to be buried. And if you knew this family and know this family, they had two children at this point, and the names that they have since given to all their kids are very distinct names. No one else has names like these kids. And so with this child in the womb, the one that was going to be born to be buried... I remember asking the dad at one point, well, what are you going to name him? By that point, they knew it was a son. And he said, we're going to name him Elijah. It's a perfect name, isn't it? Because it means Yahweh is my God. It's hope in hardship. It's trust in tribulation. It's steadfastness in sorrow. It's the kind of summons that we find in our text tonight of Job 1 and 2. So we left off two weeks ago. If you just glance up to really verse 1 of Job chapter 1, we got to meet this man who was named Job. Precisely, we got to know something of his blessedness, his material wealth, that there was no one like him materially and spiritually in all the ancient world. He was a man preeminently of godliness and piety, of noticeable and unimpeachable integrity, which is absolutely fundamental to what we're going to see along the way tonight as Satan comes and he wants to tear Job down. 
And what we said at the end of our study two weeks ago is that faithfulness to God does not exempt one from suffering. Faithfulness to God does not exempt one from suffering. And it's a fundamental reality not only to this text, but to the ensuing chapters in the book's entirety for us to understand that Job didn't deserve Genuinely, he didn't deserve anything that was going to come his way. And so, in a book that's full of questions, we want to ask a few key questions along the way tonight. Maybe you've, in your own Bible reading plan, just slowly but surely made your way through all these 40-plus chapters in Job. I remember years ago, as a high school student, reading through Job one year and and highlighting, circling, as actually was a square I put around every single question at the bottom of each page. I would tally up the question marks, because... It seemed like so much of the book was just little more than questions, answers, back and forth, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because so often when suffering strikes and calamity comes, what do we do but but we ask questions? And so we want to ask two simple questions of our text tonight in these two cycles of suffering that we see. Because in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you almost get these identical rhythms of suffering in Job's life. You have this heavenly scene Conversation between God and Satan that leads to this earthly suffering that ends with Job's response and ultimately ends with the narrator's, the spirit's perspective on Job's righteousness in the midst of the suffering. So first of all, the question we must ask is, what would you do if you lost all your wealth? And then secondly, what would you do if you lost all your health? And what we're meant to see right from the outset in a way that's going to confront us and often should convict us, and we want it to stick in our minds for however long the Lord would let us live here on earth, is God's glory is more valuable than your comfort. Job, in a way that perhaps no one outside of the Lord Jesus Christ illustrates that truth for us, that God's glory, His majesty, His honor, His renown, well, that is worth so much more than all your earthly wealth and health. So, what would you do? If you lost all your wealth, look at verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So students, you, you picture the scene. You have these angelic beings summoned before God's presence for something like a heavenly cabinet meeting. We don't know exactly what they're being summoned to discuss or summoned to deliberate about or hear from God on, but... Certainly, we're meant to see, aren't we, at the end of verse 6, that Satan also came among them. The accuser, the the slanderer, he shows up and and God asks, well, where have you come from? And Satan says, well, I've just been going to and fro, up and down the earth. And he's pictured here, isn't he, as this kind of wandering nomad upon the earth. And you ask the question, because this is our first introduction to Satan, really, in in terms of biblical chronology outside of the Garden of Eden and the fall in Genesis chapter 3, well, what is Satan up to? Well, in light of God's response, which is really a question in verse 8, it's clear that Satan is going up and down. He's going to and fro. He's looking for people. He's looking for those that he can accuse, those that he can slander, those that he can lead astray. And you see what God does in verse 8. He says, well, have you considered My servant Job, repeating the language from verse 1 of chapter 1, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan, you've been looking around for someone. Have you ever thought about Job? 
And to grasp the significance, to grasp the depth of this situation, a student, you can think about it perhaps in this way. It would be akin to a jewelry owner in a small town. And that small town knows that there's this local thief who likes to steal, who likes to destroy. And that thief comes into the jewelry store and you ask the thief as the owner, well, what have you been up to? And he says, well, I've just been going about stealing and destroying, taking and burning. And now I've come for some jewels. And you begin to show him, or he looks around, if you will, the jewelry shelves and cabinets. And then the owner says, now don't look over there. Come over here. This is the best one, right here. That's basically what God is doing with Satan. Have you considered, in light of the beginning of chapter 1, my holiest one? Have you considered my servant Job? And you see what Satan evidently has done is already considered Job. Because you see what he says in verse 9 and 10. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and possessions and have increased in the land. Uh, you, you do want, a lot of times, don't you, when you, you read the Bible, you want this kind of scriptural tone meter. Now, what's the tone of, of Satan's response there to the Lord? Have you considered my servant Job? Because it seems as though it's right for us to think of Satan here as seething. Of course I've considered Job. But who's Job? Just the most blessed man on the earth. And why wouldn't anyone praise you if you give him anything a human being would ever want? Who's Job? But it's a key question, isn't it? That so often marks even our life in Jesus Christ. How many people today that profess faith in the Lord Jesus, when suffering comes, uh, the desire even to worship God falls away because for so long, what they've actually worshipped are the blessings, not the blessed one. They've put their joy in the gifts, not the giver. And so what you have here is something of a debate going on between the Lord and Satan. Satan is saying, no one will worship you if they have nothing but you. No one will worship you if they have nothing but you. Well, what does God say? Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Satan, you can do anything you want. To whatever Job has, you just can't do anything to who Job is. In other words, well, let's just see if someone will worship me when all they have is me. So you see, in verse 13 through 19, the text doesn't tell us exactly how much time has passed. But all of this calamity comes upon Job's life in one day. And it's just eloquent in its literary devices. What you have, of course, is this piled up reality of all the sorrow and suffering in Job's life. Where this servant just kind of erupts into his presence. You can picture him, can't you, just bursting through the door, blasting into the tent and saying, Master, Master, I've come! Because what's happened? But we're told in Verse 14, that the Sabaeans had fallen upon the oxen and the donkeys, killed all the servants who were with him. 
And before he finishes his last part of the news, in comes another servant and says, Fire has fallen from heaven and taken all the sheep and all of their servants. And before he's done, a third one shows up and says, The Chaldeans have split into these three groups and they've taken all the camels and all the servants with them. And I alone have survived to tell you. And before he's done, the worst news of all comes, doesn't it? You can picture it. A servant finishing his breaking news announcement. Perhaps with more meekness. Certainly I think we should read it this way with with greater sobriety. You have this servant not coming with this news of calamity, urgency, but all the ten kids were gathered in one house, likely for one of their birthdays. And something like a tornado fell upon their house and, and Job, they're all dead. In one day, the most wealthy man in the ancient Near Eastern world has lost all his wealth. A father of ten children, a father who we saw in verse 5, didn't we, of of chapter 1, led them faithfully and earnestly and spiritually, now is going to have to dig ten large plots to bury ten children at once. What would you do if you lost all your wealth? Well, what did Job do? Look at verse 20. He arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. That last verb is altogether striking, isn't it? I mean, it almost seems out of all expectation and sequence where you can see he arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, these, these marks of grief. And you would expect, wouldn't you, that he'd fall on the ground and, and grieve. He'd fall on the ground and cry. He'd fall on the ground and wail. But what does he do? He, he worships saying in a way that only Scripture can speak so eloquently. Verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No one will worship you if all they have is you. Well, you see the final verse of of chapter 1. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Scene closes. Lights rise again on the heavenly council. And you have another repeating pattern of the same rhythm. For you see, again, a day, according to verse 1 of chapter 2, came when the sons of God were to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan is uh, is once again with them. And God again says, well, what have you been doing? I've been going up and down, to and fro, wandering about all the earth. And he says in verse 3, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him, this man Job. But look at the end of verse 3. He adds something this time around, God does. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. It's a verse that no doubt can trip many people up as they try to understand God's sovereignty over all things, sovereignty over suffering, sovereignty over Satan. It's language that Christians throughout the ages have tried to grapple with to communicate the biblical truth. It's language even our church's confession of faith tries to distinguish between first causes and second causes when it comes to God's sovereignty. But the the vital thing, perhaps even the the most essential thing that you need to understand here is that uh, the text is telling us, isn't it, is, is Satan is powerful, right? You see him even in that first scene. He's inciting Sabaeans. 
Chaldeans to war against God's servant. Uh, But Satan is no rival to God, as though he's something of an equal in the spiritual universe. He's just this wicked rebel that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and can only go as far as God's leash allows him. And in this second scene, the leash is going to go further, isn't it? Uh, Because... Notice what Satan says in response. No doubt, more seething anger in verse 4 and 5. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. And he will curse you to your face. You've let me take all he has. But now let me take all that he is. And then no longer will he worship you. And so you'll see in verse 7, Satan leaves. He he strikes Job, doesn't he, with these sores. It's meant to depict this comprehensive suffering, isn't it? These sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Uh, People have often thought throughout the ages, what exactly were the sores depicting? What sickness or illness or ailment struck Job? And we don't know. And the point is, Satan could do whatever he wanted to Job's body, but he couldn't kill him. Don't you think Satan would have afflicted him in the worst possible way? Scraping himself with this broken pottery, trying to alleviate the pain. But Satan's tactics aren't done. Because what we see, don't we, in verse 9, as Augustine says, he uses Job's wife as the devil's assistant. She says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, those of you that are married, uh, there's much to learn here in a variety of different ways in verse 9 and 10. Uh, most centrally is the way in which you as a spouse have profound spiritual influence on how your spouse endures suffering. How your spouse even rejects suffering. I've seen no small number of times in my pastoral ministry where a spouse is put in a season of suffering. And the husband or the wife, whatever the situation, only seems to incite the response being one of pride, sinfulness. Or positively, it can be a response of godly submission, humble reliance upon the Spirit in the suffering. And I frankly don't even know what to make of Job's wife's response here. I mean, she, of course, herself had seen all the wealth in the family disappear. She, too, was going to have to bury ten children. She seems to want the easy out. Probably it's best to see that she just wants the suffering to be over. What does Job say? Look at verse 10. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. You could read that as a correction, stern rebuke almost. You could also read it as as kindness. Kids, it might be a different way of saying, don't be silly. You know better than that. But again, what does he say? Shall we receive good from God and... Shall we not receive evil? He hasn't cursed God. Satan said, let me take all that he has. Let me take all that he is and he will curse you. And God says, let's see. And in all this, the text ends, doesn't it? Job did not sin with his lips. I remember when I was growing up in 
the home of my youth, there was no small number of times when it fell upon me to clean up the kitchen after dinner. And some of you students or parents might understand this and have seen it before. A fair portion of that cleanup seemed to be, you know, taking the plates, scraping them off and putting everything into the disposal and then turning that thing on and letting it churn and then realizing, oh, the smell wasn't exactly right. And I remember my mom telling me on one occasion, she said, hey, just go grab a lime. And I was like, what do you want me to do with the lime? And she said, just cut it up and throw it in the disposal. It's going to smell better. Uh, the crushing, the blades, the suffering brings forth the sweetness. That's true, isn't it, of every person's life. When the suffering comes, it's crushing power, it's cutting power, it's blade-like force. It's going to show the world what truly is there. The sweetness that can belong to the Christian's life of suffering. The sweet response, of course, that you find in Job's life. For no one outside of the Lord Jesus Christ certainly has ever suffered in this way. And yet been so righteous in his response. What might it take then for you in the midst of your season of suffering? Future season maybe of suffering to respond like Job. Well, let's close with two final things. Uh, you need to understand, no doubt, that God is sovereign over your suffering, and that should mean, number one, that you trust his wisdom. That you trust his wisdom. Isn't that what Job is doing at the end of chapter 2? Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? So often when suffering strikes, you're going to seek a source of wisdom. Wisdom that will say, like Job's friends in chapters to come, you deserved it. You did something to bring this into your life or wisdom. They'll say, you did nothing to deserve this. Wisdom that's even from the world. You should reject your God on the basis of all of this suffering that he's brought into your life. He surely can't be good if he's allowed this to come to pass. But what's much better, isn't it, is trusting God's wisdom. He who is Jesus Christ, who's become to us wisdom from God. First in the Lord Jesus Christ and his offering of himself once and for all on the cross of Calvary that we see that what is apparently senseless suffering, God rules according to his good and kind sovereignty. That even when it doesn't appear like it from the outside, his wisdom is bringing his good and perfect promises to come to pass. And then secondly, it's not just trust his wisdom, it's, it's treasure his worth in ways that maybe you haven't understood before, the, the entire book of Job is genuinely a spiritual battle over God's worth. Can you treasure God when all you have is God? Uh, what the book of Job is going to do, if you just kind of fast forward the narrative, if you in some ways just kind of let out the spoiler of the book, it's helping us understand that so often when suffering comes, we ask the wrong questions. We, like Job's friends, and even Job himself, are asked questions of why. Why has this come? When God's saying the right question is who? Who is sovereign over my suffering? Because isn't it true when God is soon going to appear in a whirlwind, present himself in awesome majesty before Job, he's never going to answer the question of why. We know why. Job doesn't know what we know from chapters 1 and 2. God is going to say what you need to know. All you need to know is who I am. And who I am is enough for you to worship me no matter what else you have. Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, we do ask that you would give us in the midst of whatever suffering that you have brought our way, that you would give us the patience and steadfastness of Job. Lord, we want to be a people that submit humbly and meekly to your frowning providences in our life. Let us continually learn what it means to find our joy and happiness in, in who you are, and not primarily in what you give to us by way of blessings and gifts. Keep us always grateful. Keep us always close to your Son, Jesus Christ. Trusting in your wisdom and treasuring your worth, we pray in his precious name. Amen.